Well, good morning. Good reading, Nige. You know, last week we left off on a bitter, sweet place in Judges. Um, sweet in the sense that now they've entered the promised land, right? That's what they've been expecting. Um, that was great, but as we saw, they obeyed the Lord, kinda, partially. And that's a problem because they're not actually conquering all of the land. It's just partial. And they didn't have, they've actually failed to drive out the Canaanites. They're happy to coexist with them. And not only coexist with them, but with their idols. And even though God had specifically told them not to do this, um, they still are in defiance. So because they failed on these two fronts, not driving out the Canaanites and not destroying their idols, the Lord refuses, as we just saw, to expel, to dislodge the Canaanites from the land. And now on, for now on, they'll be really a nuisance to them, a, a thorn in their side. Today we pick up in Judges 2. What the author does is, is a bit of a f- flashback. He, he goes to an earlier period. If you remember, it says in the very beginning, Joshua dies, he's dead, and then all of a sudden now, you know, he's, he's back again, right? Dead man walking, so to speak, but not really. But what, what, what he does is a bit of a flashback to an earlier period. Now, these were the good old days. A generation who served the Lord and obeyed him, but as we see, their kids dropped the ball. They didn't take on their parents' faith. They actually do the opposite, bowing down to all these false gods in Canaan. And just as God had warned, he allows other nations to invade them, rob them, and make their lives miserable. And even when they muster up the courage to fight back, God ensures that they actually lose the battle. It's not all doom and gloom. In the midst of unnerving times, the Lord sends deliverers to rescue them. And then they turn back to God. At least for a while. But as soon as the deliverer dies, guess what? They plunge right back into their wicked ways. Actually, they'll become, as we see, progressively worse. And so will their judges, by the way. Next week, we're going to get into the very first judge. And he's a righteous dude. But it seems like by the time you get to the one of the last judges, that's Samson. And I think just his l- name alone will, you know, he's the womanizing Fabio of the book of Judges, right? And, and so you, you watch this descent, really, from the very first judge going all the way down. And that's a reflection, really, of what the spiritual state of Israel is at this time. But how'd that happen? How'd they go from sort of the Billy Graham generation to a bunch of ratbags, really overnight, if you think about it? They've gone from one generation who was solid, feared God, served the Lord, and yet their kids, it's like chalk and cheese, right? Totally the opposite. What happened? How did they go from serving God to serving idols? And, and, and the way that it's described, as Nigel just read for us, it said that they, they actually, in doing this, it's not just that they sort of made a mistake or fell into, you know, a couple bad habits, but in so doing, in so worshiping and serving these other gods, 
they actually played the harlot. They committed spiritual infidelity. Now think how massive that is, even that term. You know, if, if you meet someone, and, and unfortunately we live in a society that's full of divorce, but if you bump into an old friend and they say, I got a divorce, oh man, I'm so sorry, and you think maybe I should, you know, try to encourage this person or buy them a coffee or whatever, and, and you want to sort of listen to the story, but and, and it's, it's hard, it's, t it's, it's sad. But if they add this little note in at the end and they say, oh, but there was infidelity, you go, whoa. It just turns the, all the volume up, doesn't it? That's the picture we have here. Israel has committed spiritual infidelity from just one generation to the next. But what's the root of this infidelity? What's the display of this infidelity? And how does God respond to it? That's what I want to look at today as we think about this. What is the root of spiritual infidelity? And not just for Israel, but for us. What is the display of spiritual infidelity? And how does God respond to spiritual infidelity? That's where we're headed. If you want to sort of give some hooks for your mind. All right, so why don't we pray and then we'll, we'll dive into this very gritty rated R book. You know, I was, I was actually thinking about it. If my kids, which they don't do this, they don't just turn on the TV without our permission, but, right kids? Um, but if I came around the corner and they, I noticed they were watching, if someone made the book of Judges into a film and my kids were watching it, I'd be like, what is your mother letting you watch? No, not really. Um, but I'd say, what, you know, What's going on? You, you would never want to show this movie to kids, right? And yet the grittiness, it's not, the, we'll, we'll miss the point. If we focus on just the horrific tales, that misses the point. You're seeing man's depravity and God's grace. You're seeing God's mercy even in chaotic, tumultuous times. And that's what we're going to see today. So let's just pray the Lord will bless our time and let's jump into it. Father, Lord, as we are listening to this, we pray that um, even, Lord, for those that are listening to this on a Tuesday or a Wednesday now, uh, Lord, we pray that no matter where we're at, that your spirit would move in such a way that we wouldn't just hear information, but we'd get a, a greater picture of who you are and your grace, and we'd be transformed by it. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so how did this spiritual deterioration happen, right? What is th what's the roots of this spiritual infidelity? Well, well, let's pick up in Judges. So Judges 2, this is the good old days. We're going to start there, again, with this faithful generation, right? Here's this flashback. Judges 2, 6, when Joshua, again, the flashback here, they ha you know, he hasn't been raised from the dead. This is just doing a flashback. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people, notice, notice their epitaph, right? They served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. Again, solid generation, right? Faithful generation. But notice what happens when they pass the baton onto their kids. Verse 10. 
Drop to verse 10. And all that generation, that's the, the Joshua generation, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Isn't it interesting that we're given very little background here? Nowhere near the amount of details that we received last week. Do you remember last week, all of those random towns and names and tribes and people? None of that's flagged for us today. Instead, the focus is on Israel's downfall. And what's the root of it? You see it there? They did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord or his saving work. And isn't that really the bottom line issue? It's important, though, that we grasp this word to know. I mean, because certainly, think about this, certainly they had some idea about what their moms and dads had just previously experienced. There's no possible way that if we could go back in time and you can bump into this new generation, someone on the street, and you'd start talking about the exodus, the wilderness, the crossing of the Jordan, the coming into the promised land, they go, wait, what? What, 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 what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're saying. So it's not a lack of information. If you, keep, if you read on in Judges, when the angel comes to Gideon, it's interesting, Gideon is frightened, but what does Gideon say? Gideon, what he says is, where are the great works that our fathers experienced? So Gideon is a person who needs contemporary miracles because he's no longer grounded in those old ones. The point is, he still knows. So knowing can't mean lacking information. It's to know the Lord by experience. To know has the sense of knowing God by experience, not just intellectually, but to know him as a way of life. I think there's a biblical principle at work here. We need to always be recalling, recounting, and retelling the great things God has done for us. Think of the days, for a second, think of the days before you were a Christian. Think how you felt. How did you act? What was your view of the world? You were in bondage to sin. And yet, what happened? One day, the Lord saved you from all that. Redeemed you. Now you're a new creation. You have a new set of eyes to see the world. We should never lose sight of that. We should never forget that. That was, that was Israel's problem. This new generation had failed to rehearse and to recount God's saving work. Spiritual amnesia will eventually lead to apostasy. When I have dinner with my family, I want my kids to hear how God is working in dad's life. 
that day or that week. So I just talked about a testimony, a turning point. Some of you grew up in church and maybe you haven't had a turning point. How has the Lord been gracious to you this week as in the last six days, seven days? How are you walking with him? So what I want my kids to hear as we sit around and we have dinner together is I want to hear how God has been gracious to dad to fight a particular sin. I want the kids to hear how God is helping me share the gospel with someone. And I'll, sometimes we even talk about the person's name and where that person works and where they saw, watch dad engage and share the gospel with him. Sometimes we'll be at a playground. We were at a playground a few weeks ago and I was, engage, I was talking with a guy and said, dad, what were you talking with that guy? It was about Jesus. Yes, yes, I was telling that guy about, what's his name? Here's his name. We want him to know Jesus. Let's pray for this guy. Let's pray for his kids. Hey, maybe you can tell his kids about Jesus. I, I, I want them to, I, I like to share what I'm learning in my devotions. So, so I want to teach them and say, hey, here, here's, what dad's, here's what I learned, guys, this week in my devotions. You see, all of this not only helps me not to forget the character of God, but I'm able to pass that on to the next generation, you see. Psalm 78 says this, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from the, of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but to tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He's established his testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. What happens with our kids? What happens with our grandkids and their relationship with the Lord? What happens with this next generation? How will they know the Lord? It's the home. The home is to be the primary place of spiritual formation. Mom and dad have been given the task to be the primary disciplers of their kids. To pass on to the next generation, as the psalm says, the glorious deeds of the Lord. I was once at a conference called Together for the Gospel with about 10,000 pastors and church leaders. 10,000. And I remember as the conference started off, the guy that was sort of emceeing the thing said, stand up here, those of you, he wanted to hear, sort of decipher, at least with 10,000 people there, and do a little bit of a, I guess, a research and say, stand up if your parents were Christians and influenced you to know Christ. I kid you not, I didn't and April didn't, both of our parents aren't Christians. So praise God, we're, we're saved. But I kid you not, 90% of the, everybody stood up. And I thought, and April and I just looked at each other, we're like, wow, what a task. W what a responsibility that we have as parents. And what an impact this has. 
you know, maybe you haven't shined in this area. Maybe you feel sort of discouraged and you haven't really done your due diligence to lead your family. Friend, can I encourage you? Listen to me. Make a commitment today that God's word is going to be the centerpiece in your home. That the scriptures are not only going to be taught, but caught. They're not only going to be spoken about, but they're going to be modeled. And this is where, look, this is where the gospel is just has to penetrate. I sinned against one of my kids yesterday. And rather than just brush it off, I was able to say, would you forgive me the way that I lost my temper with you? I love you. And Jesus died for that sin. You see, I'm just segueing right to the gospel. It's not abstract. I'm saying, dad's a sinner. And dad loves you. God loves dad and forgave dad's sin. And because of that, and he's made me new creation, I'm able to now, you're give, it's a common grace. You have to understand, prior to Christ, I would have blown up on that kid and just said, whatever, it was their fault. They pushed me to that edge. But now I'm a new creation. Now the Lord is working in my life and I can segue immediately to the gospel. The gospel can shape every single part of your home. Do you, does that make sense? And I don't mean hanging up tacky scriptures all over the place in weird frames. Sorry, bit of an aside there. I just mean the, the, the truths, the principles of it, you see? Don Carson talks about the importance of this and he says this, one generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third will forget and deny it. One generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third will forget and deny it. Don't know if you watched much of the Olympics recently. I like the baton racing. I think that's just legit. I wish I would have done that in high school. But, you know, I was thinking about it. As parents, we get the privilege to pass the baton on to our kids of knowing Christ. And I want to pass the baton of knowing Christ onto my kids and make sure they get it. I'm going to put their little hands on that baton. I'll hold it with them for a while. They can carry the baton with me. I'm going to hold them while they carry it. And at some point, I'll wave goodbye knowing they can carry it. That's my responsibility. That's not a church program responsibility. That's my responsibility. Deuteronomy 6 is extremely clear on this. And if you are a dad and you are listening to this, that is your responsibility. If you are a mother and you are listening to this, that is your responsibility that God has given you to do. How is the gospel shaping your home? All right. We've seen the root of spiritual infidelity, not knowing God. Now let's examine the expression or display of it found in verses 11 through 13. So the root of spiritual infidelity, now the display of spiritual infidelity. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was 
evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Did you hear how the author portrays God's evaluation of their behavior? It was wicked in his sight. It needs to be said that they didn't abandon God and simply become atheists, right? It was a bunch of Sam Harris's running around in the promised land or some of, you know, some of these other famous atheists. No, no, no. We all worship something, even the atheists, even the modern-day atheists. And verse 12 shows us their new objects of devotion. Look at verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. Their display of infidelity is idolatry. It's a divided heart. The gods around them chased after them. And in case you missed it, notice the author gives us these very colorful verbs so that we can visualize it. They served, they abandoned, went after, bowed down. You remember the beginning of the chapter? We just read verse 7, the epitaph for this generation, the Joshua 1. They served the Lord. Well, this generation serves, bows down to, with the same intensity and passion, but it's not to God, it's to idols. See what divided allegiance that is? Imagine, let me bring it home to you fellas in here. Imagine if, you know, your wife on your anniversary says, I love you, I'm devoted to you, I'm, I'm, I'm yours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and she, you know, she, or she writes a card and you're, you're reading it and you're really encouraged because you love her and you want that reciprocal devotion. And she says, and there's this other bloke that I'm just as devoted to. Eat, enjoy your steak. You see, God is jealous for the commitment, for the love, for the devotion of his people. No wonder. I mean, is it any wonder that they're bowing down to these other gods? Is it any wonder that God is outraged? Notice verse 13. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. When it says that they forsook the Lord and turned to other gods, Baal and Ashtaroth. I'm not sure what image comes to your mind. Maybe you grew up in a part of the world uh, dominated by Buddhism or Hinduism. So you might think of temples, shrines, burning incense and the like. Canaanite religion was similar to this, being polytheistic, believing in many gods. But the way in which they thought about weather patterns or fertility and how they perform their sacred rituals was very different. Uh, the Canaanite religion uh, was kind of similar to Greek mythology. You know, in Greek mythology, you've got these gods, and they're always sort of vying for power. They're always sort of tossing. They're always sort of jostling for who can be the biggest god, so to speak. Uh, maybe Zeus in Greek mythology. In the land of Canaan, it was the god El. The god El. And El's pictured as this transcendent, powerful figure who's very distant to humans. He doesn't really give a rip about humans because he's in the northern mountain somewhere where the rivers meet. And he has his feet kicked up and he's holding court and he's entertaining the other gods. El has a wife and her name is actually right there in the text, Ashtaroth. 
That's El's wife. Now, you might recognize Ashtaroth in the plural form, Ashtarim. It comes all, it it's pops up all throughout the Old Testament. Anyway, in this pantheon drama, there you have El and you have his wife. And things seem like they'd be happily ever after, right? In the God world. Until one day, another deity shows up and crashes the party. His name is Baal. Baal was the storm god who displayed himself in rain and thunder and lightning. Now picture this. If you're one of these other gods who's involved in weather, weather patterns, be it the sea or whatever, Baal shows up at the party and you better get rid of this other god, Baal, because soon enough you're going to be out of a job. So then they challenge him to hand-to-hand combat, but Baal whoops them. He pulls MMA on all of the guys, messes up all the other gods, and proves that he's the superior god. And as a trophy, he takes El's wife, sorry, you know, you know remember? El and his wife. And so after he whoops up all these other gods and proves that he's the strongest god, Baal, Baal decides, I'm going to take Ashroth as my consort, my wife, in a way. And so now he is the master of the land. That's how the Canaanites thought about the world and about gods, which makes sense. Think about it this way. In the land of Canaan, if you're a farmer and you're dependent upon rain, right? Your main work is agricultural. Well, who are you going to pray to? The storm god, right? Baal. Or let's say you're a Canaanite woman and you'd like to have a baby. Don't forget to pray to the mother goddess, Ashtaroth. After all, she's the god of fertility. Now that makes sense for them. What on earth is Israel doing? What on earth is Israel doing plunging into this? Seriously. Not to mention, it's not like, you know, you'd be sort of in your shower, in your bathroom, and you'd throw a quick prayer out to Ashtaroth or to Baal. No, the way in which that you prayed to these deities, for in order to get these gods to respond and provide what you needed, you need to reenact or mimic erotic behaviors to entice these gods to lust over you and therefore move on your behalf. Hence the reason verse 17 says, Israel played the whore. They whored after other gods. Now, before we shake our heads or our fingers at Israel, Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. These people had just this new generation. They're not farmers, are they? They're desert people because they've just entered the land. So put yourself in their shoes. You don't have a green thumb, but you enter into the land where people do. They've been cultivating the soil there for ages, donkey's years. And so you look over at your neighbors, they've got these massive crops. And they say, and you ask them, wow, you know, how, how'd you look at my little, I can only grow three tomatoes, you know, and you've got this whole crop. So how, how'd that happen? Oh, it's very simple. We just pray to Baal. Yeah, Baal's the storm god. And you go, oh, well, okay. Wow, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fully get rid of God because he helps, he's the, he's asked, uh, he kind of helps us fight the battles. So maybe what I'll do is I'll have a category of gods. Yahweh, the Lord, he's the God of our battles. And then 
Baal, he's the God of the crop. And what if you're struggling? What if you're a woman who's struggling, who, who, who's infertile, who can't have a baby? Well, you can just just quick little prayer. And, and you don't even have to go to a temple. You can even set up a pole there and you can pray to Astaroth. You can pray that she'll bless you. And God will understand. You, you see what's happening here? It's pragmatics over principle. See, it's, it's about spiritual choice versus practical choice. That's really the rub here. You know, in our lives, we have often a spiritual choice or a practical choice. And look, what might seem practical and reasonable may not be actually faithful. I'm curious for you to tease that out in your growth group this week. What area of tension are you feeling between a practical versus a principle. Now, sometimes you can marry those two, but sometimes, look, it's not going to be practical to hold on to this principle. Does that make sense? So I'm curious as you tease that out in your growth group, what those two things would be for you. So the root of spiritual infidelity, the display of spiritual infidelity, and now how does God respond to it? Well, grass is not greener on the other Canaanite side, is it? <laughs> Look at verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. They were raided, they were plundered, they were defeated, they were in great distress. And it isn't just bad luck that this happened. It was God's righteous judgment. It's the covenant curses he said he would bring upon them back in Deuteronomy. God is not some indulgent father who winks at the sins of his children. No. He is a God of justice whose number one priority for his people is not their happiness, but their holiness. And yet he's not all judgment, is he? God responds with judgment, but in verse 16, we also see God responding in mercy. Then the Lord raised up judges, in verse 16, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The Lord's response to Spiritual infidelity is judgment, but it's also mercy. He raised up judges. And these two qualities of God, judgment and mercy, are ultimately displayed at the cross, are they not? As the hymn writer says, heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love. Isn't that beautiful? That all of this idea of justice and mercy converge at the cross. So here in Judges, God is seen, his grace is seen as he raises up these leaders to deliver Israel, even when they don't deserve it. And I'm curious, when you, when you hear the word judge, what image comes to mind? Perhaps you picture a man or a woman sitting in a courtroom with a gavel in their hand. You know, a, a, a gavel, it's one of those small wooden hammers they use to order, order, call attention. 
Naturally, when we hear the word judge, we think of a courtroom. But the book of Judges, when they use the term, the judge isn't holding a gavel, but a sword. You see, their job wasn't to carry out a legal or judicial role, but to fulfill a military role. If you look once more at verse 16, it'll make more sense. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Can you hear the word save? That means to deliver. Judges could rightly be labeled the book of deliverers. For example, um, take the first judge, Othniel. Judges 3.10 says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, that's Othniel, and he judged Israel, and notice, he went out to war. Can you see what he's doing? How are you going to deliver Israel from these fearsome enemies? You don't go out there with a gavel, (laughs) right? You go out there with a sword. It's like back in the day, the, the British police used to have billy clubs. You know, stop! Or I'll say stop again, you know. Now, you, you, you actually have to have like a weapon. And that's who these judges are. But notice this, notice too, it's not, it's not just the power of the judge and his weapon. It's the spirit of the Lord, you see. Notice here, let's keep reading. This is amazing too. Watch this cycle that happens. It's this vicious cycle. Verse 17 Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. For whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. But you notice there, it's interesting, the Lord raises up, you see the vicious cycle, I think that's easy to see, but the Lord has pity, and the Lord raises up a judge, and he's with them to save them. You're going to see this again and again happen. It says the Spirit was upon this judge. So in other words, it's not just that the judge has a sword. It's not just, you know, William Wallace or or whatever. But the the Lord in his kindness is using this judge. His spirit is raising up this judge. You know, we have the best deliverer ever. We have the deliverer who wasn't sinful ever. We have a deliverer who doesn't come to be killed, but to kill, but, but to be actually, sorry, not to kill himself, but to be, to lay down his life, the Lord Jesus. We have one who has destroyed sin on our behalf. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love. I hope you can see a bit of that here in the book of Judges and get a picture of our gracious God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again that we can reflect upon your character, your mercy, even in these chaotic times, Lord, in the book of Judges. We think about our own world, Lord, that so many people do what's right in their own eyes. Lord, this, in some ways, 
is similar to our generation, Lord. Those that could care less about following you and plunge into wickedness. We pray, Lord, here in this land that you would bring justice. But Lord, we also pray that you'd show mercy and you'd save many for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name.